0: Welcome to the Addiction Psychologist Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Addiction Psychology.
1: All right, for today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Cassie Bonus. Cassie is an intern at Western Psychiatric Hospital at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And she's going to be talking about diagnostic issues in alcohol use disorder research and some of the steps she
0: has taken to solve those issues. All right, Cassie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Cassie.
1: Before we jump into all of your excellent work um, and, and talk about you know what you're doing right now, uh, it's always helpful to get a, a feel for 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 our interviewees training background so could you walk us through that
2: yeah um i maybe have a little bit of a non-traditional way of getting to alcohol research um which is kind of my main focus i went to um northern arizona university for my undergraduate in flagstaff arizona and it's not like a r1 it's not very research heavy um so it, but somehow I stumbled into research and um, just through like some undergraduate research opportunities. Um, so I got to do kind of some fun stuff while I was there. I did like some animal research that looked at um, the effects of like prenatal exposure to safe levels of uranium and drinking water on uh, like brain function and then like hormone development um, across development. So that was really different. Um,
1: yeah, very different.
2: If, yeah. Especially if you know like anything about what I do now. It's just like, what? Um, and then the second study that I did um was more with human participants and looking at things like eating and coping styles um, among individuals of varying mm-hmm. weights. So I really like, you know, still found a way to kind of dip my toes into some research, even if it wasn't necessarily like the path that I wanted to stay on. Um, so I mean, I was really fortunate in that I had a lot of really great mentorship, even though it wasn't a R1 institution. Um, And the mentors there encouraged me to apply for an undergraduate research grant, um, which as like a, you know, like a a first generation, like academic grad student. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) It's a terrible idea.
0: Right. Um,
2: Who is going to help me? Um, But I did it um, and I, proposed this project that was related to alcohol. Um, So I kind of was just like this fish out of water trying to figure out like this whole broad area of research with no like very little content specific mentorship. Um, And I proposed this really like elaborate study that was looking at like cross-cultural differences between um, the US, like students in the US and students in Scotland where I was studying abroad uh, as part of that grant. so. I just like went for it. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a really like fantastic experience. It really solidified like my desire um, for the the subject um, of substance use disorders specifically. So that was kind of my like foray into alcohol research. Um, and I was fortunate enough, you know, to end up at the University of Missouri uh, for grad school and you know, going into that process, applying to grad school, I have some RAs going through the process right now. And I just, I had no like mentorship, especially for places that did alcohol research for people in the field who would be good to work with. The mentors I had at the time had no idea. So I was really just kind of like going into this process blind. Um, and it was really, um, it's already a hard process, but that really just added a level of complexity. And I, right. You know, I somehow like ended up at the University of Missouri, which at the time, I, I didn't know it was like this alcohol training, like hotspot, right? Like, I, oh, yeah. I, I had no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean I, so many of the researchers that, that I, I've looked up to that, you know, are, or, or that have just a generally large impact on, on the field, very active in RSA and, you know, a lot of NIAA funded studies. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. all happening at Missouri.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I like, it was this, like this happy, like, um, accident almost Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I ended up there. Um, yeah. So I, I've done my graduate training at university of Missouri, um, under the mentorship of Dr. Ken share. Um, they, as you mentioned, Sam, they have a T32 alcohol training grant. So a large part of my training, um, was supported by that. Um, which just gave me like you were saying, like a really great foundation with the number of folks that are there with the different um, like focuses they have related to alcohol. So I just got a lot of really great training really fast. Um, and then the last three years of my training um, have been supported by an F31 or an NRSA um, from NIAA as well. Um, so that's kind of where, that's really directed like where I've gone with my research and kind of more of what I'll talk about today, um, hopefully with you all. But That's kind of been my training history. Um, Of course, there's been lots of specific details, but I won't necessarily go into that. I'm currently on clinical internship um, at the University of Pittsburgh, um, Pittsburgh Medical Center, Western Psychiatric Hospital, formerly known as WIPIC. And I just got started with that in September. So this is relatively new to me. Um, But I'm There's lots of opportunities here as well to do great alcohol research. Um, so I've been working with some fantastic folks like, um, Sarah Peterson and Brent Hassler, who does some alcohol, um, and sleep stuff.
0: Outstanding. Yeah. So you've kind of really come from, um, so I'm from Arizona too. So I'm I'm familiar with any of you shout out lumberjacks, right. Um, to like all the way to Mizzou, which is like, so like no alcohol research at all, all the way to like the, like one of the biggest centers around alcohol-related research, working with Ken, who's been doing this for a really long time. And it sounds like you've had some really great training across a couple of different fellowships, right? So you have a pre-doctoral fellowship with, through a T32, it sounds like, um, in addition to an F31, which is an individualized training grant. Um, and so it sounds like you've had like a really great like experience across the research spectrum. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your program of research, what it kind of focuses on, what are some of the kind of things that you really look at?
2: Yeah. um, So I kind of take like a really broad approach to this question. Um, And, you know, I think the majority of my research can kind of be summed up by saying that I focus on diagnostic issues and alcohol use disorder research. And that means a lot of different things because a lot goes into a diagnosis, right? Um, So most of, Really, what I've focused on comes all the way from like etiology of alcohol use disorder (AUD) um, all the way through like diagnosis and classification and assessment, which then obviously has implications for things like prevention and treatment. Um, so, I really, you know, as you mentioned, I've had a lot of, um, I've had a lot of training opportunities. Um, I've been really fortunate to just have a lot of those. Um, Different activities available to me, those training activities available to me, so it's really given me the opportunity to look at um, things across this whole span as related to alcohol use disorder, from etiology all the way through, kind of practical. What are we doing in a clinician's office? Um, so that's kind of the broad scoping overview of my research and um, my program of research over the years.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and you know I have a sense for for how important that is, but could you discuss that a little bit? Like what's the scope of the problem, like alcohol use disorder as a whole in, in, in our country?
2: Yeah. Um, so obviously we know that alcohol use disorder is, is quite prevalent. It's a big kind of issue facing our world, our society. Um, you know, if you've ever heard George Coop talk about, um, alcohol use disorder, he always, um, compares it to like other, epidemics that we have, um, or, um, you know, other drugs like opioids, for example, which are really, um, kind of a a big focus lately given kind of the overdose crisis that's occurring. Um, but really like alcohol is still one of the leading causes of death, um, preventable death. And so, I mean, it's really an important issue, um, to keep focusing on, even though we have these other pressing things coming at us as well. So kind of why I've found this to be important is we know that there's a big treatment gap for treating alcohol use disorder. We know that not everybody benefits from the same kind of treatment. Um, and part of, part of that, I think at least is related to how heterogeneous alcohol use disorder is. So people, you know, people presenting in a clinician's office with an alcohol use disorder can have totally different like profiles of symptoms. They can have completely different like etiologies in terms of how they got to your office in the first place, how this developed into a problem. Um, so I think you know, my work really is focused on like how do we better understand what alcohol use disorder is so that we can better characterize it, better diagnose it and identify it. And then hopefully start to you know come up with better treatments and approaches to really close that gap or at least be able to help folks who might be kind of slipping through the cracks otherwise.
1: Right. And a big part of that, I, I mean, what you're saying, the, the, the sort of different pathways to get to alcohol use disorder, um, mm-hmm. that's one important part. But the other important part is that, you know, there are 11 symptoms and none of them are sort of anchor symptoms or, or required. And so that means that you can have, um, if you have at least two of any of them, there's just a wide range of combinations of symptoms of alcohol use disorder that can be sort of thrown together such that, Mm -hmm. you know, the common thing I suppose would be that, you know, they drink alcohol. Um, but, but then the effects that that have, uh, that that has on the, on the person, um, can can be so varied and can look so, so different. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And I think part of the example that I always love to talk about, and if you've read like any of my papers, you've probably seen me talk about this at some point, but like criteria are not created equally, right? So all you need are two to endorse two of the 11 criteria to be diagnosed with an alcohol use disorder. But if somebody is endorsing tolerance um, and symptoms of withdrawal, they're quite different from somebody who reports like drinking more longer than intended or maybe like a failure to fulfill role obligations, for example, like those are very two different types of alcohol use disorder. But the way that our diagnostic system works is it just counts them as the same. And we, you know, clinicians getting that information of like this person and this person, both these two people both have an alcohol use disorder. They're, it doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot about what's going to be useful for them or what the core kind of symptoms are for that individual. Um, and we don't know, like a lot of what we don't know yet about alcohol use disorder is like, what is core to alcohol use disorder? What is unique to alcohol use disorder? Um, so that we can develop these diagnostic criteria that are more like empirically informed based on what is core, what is specific to alcohol use disorder, and is not more focused on these consequences or, um, different outcomes of alcohol use that we know, you know, may be applicable to some people and may not mm-hmm. be applicable to others. Um, yeah, it's quite
1: complicated.
0: Yeah. It's super interesting. Right. Cause if you think about it, profiles can look totally different. Um, And I think addiction in general, right? Like if you take a step back from alcohol and look at substance use in general, that like, there's really no cardinal like symptoms. People think when they Mm -hmm. say the word addiction, they think they know what they're talking about. But Usually that's like a a person specific definition. Right. And, um, and so trying to figure out a little bit about how to hang our hat on some of these things and think about some of these issues, I think it's super important, especially as you connect to these things for prevention and treatment um, and a little bit about how these things kind of um, work as a system, if that makes sense. And I know some of your work has kind of looked into this a little bit. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of the research that you've done in this area. I know I've read some stuff um, from you and also from some other people who'd like to do like network uh, mm-hmm. analysis, right? They look like, like the clusters of the symptoms and their influence on each other. And a lot of, at least that work, like from Ico Freed and such, suggest that like some of the impaired control symptoms are kind of centerpieces, which are the using more, um, and longer, like you talked about a little bit. And so I was just wondering, uh, if you could speak to some of those issues that you've kind of found there and help us walk through, uh, some of the hurdles that are here.
2: Yeah. So maybe let me work backwards a little bit. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So I like, I, at first in grad school was really interested in like assessment and psychometrics. Like that was kind of my, like I love this, like I'm really passionate about this. This is great. Let's like
1: improve. we need we need people like you, Kat. I know.
2: <laughs> I know. I had it at some exchanges with like Kevin King on Twitter recently that was like, we need measurement. I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> Hire
1: yeah. Well, me. <laughs> well, that's the problem is most most people don't want to do that. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, we we get into some some real ruts. So yeah. Thank you, yeah. Cassie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um yeah, I mean, like, I think at Missouri, it was really like instilled in me early on, like shout out to Dennis McCarthy um, Mm, for his psychometrics course. It was just really like instilled in me from the very beginning of like, does any of this matter if our psychometrics are like terrible? Right. (laughs) Um, So I, the more work that I started to do related to the assessment of alcohol use disorder, I just started to realize like If we're trying to evaluate whether these items that we're including in these measures capture the construct of interest which is alcohol use disorder but we don't actually know what alcohol use disorder is fully like what is core alcohol use disorder how do we know that any of this is meaningful um so you know i've i've done some like fancy modeling and like some you know irt analyses looking at the way that we operationalize these different 11 symptoms can really impact like, you know, the the rate of endorsement, how severe that item is considered in the scheme of the other symptoms. And all of that's like really useful and meaningful psychometrically and assessment wise. But I I was just left with this feeling of like, does this matter? (laughs) Like, this is all great and wonderful, but like, if we're not actually talking about alcohol use disorder or able to more adequately characterize it based on this work, I think, you know, there's like these big flashing lights of like my research has to go that direction. Like that's kind of the natural next step. So, Mm. you know, while I like love, um, more of these like sophisticated modeling and like IRT and measurement, I really have just found myself kind of moving back towards, um, like what is construct validity? Like, how do Mm. we know that we're measuring what we're intending to measure? Um, So, yeah, um, Noah, as you were asking, like some of my more recent work has focused on like that exact question. so using more like mixed methods to look at our survey items, for example, and say like, are the participants understanding this item in the way that we want them to? Mm. Is this item assessing what we think it's assessing? Is this response scale adequate for, you know, responding to this item? Um, You know, keeping in mind that at the same time that we're trying to see if the items are assessing what we want them to assess, we're trying to figure out like, what is alcohol use disorder? <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's great if a participant understands an item about a consequence related to alcohol use disorder, but we know that like consequences are so, can be kind of like distally related to alcohol use disorder or consumption even. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of what I've been trying to dig into lately is a lot of um, like George Coop's stuff, on um, kind of the stages of addiction, the alcohol addiction RDOC idea. And while I think that there um, is a lot of work to be done there still, I think that they're really on to something with this idea of like looking at mechanisms of alcohol use disorder um, and kind of maybe orienting, reorienting our diagnostic criteria mm. towards some of those mechanisms um, so that these criteria are more like empirically based in terms of. Um, you know, common mechanisms or type of types of mechanisms like reward dysfunction that are likely to lead somebody to having um, a substance use disorder, for example.
1: Right, right. And this is a part of a whole, whole movement almost away from this a theoretical diagnostic, uh, you know, ops, uh, observing of symptoms based sort of approach uh, that's inherent in the DSM um, towards this sort of understanding of like cross Diagnostic mm-hmm. processes um, mm-hmm. that are inherent in, in all of these, you know, you know, what alcohol use disorder is, what ADHD is, um, uh, what depression is, is they are these pictures of of what, you know, uh, a, a, a set of professionals defined uh this mm-hmm. looks like the dep- depression looks like, you know, okay, often yeah. There's anhedonia, often, you know, there's sadness. Um but but really like part of what you're saying is that like, well, maybe actually we we don't have the most accurate or or the 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 strongest way of describing this thing that is alcohol use disorder.
2: Yeah. I you know, something that you said of like a lot of the time these diagnostic criteria are decided more based on this like consensus type process like where all these really smart people with a ton of experience who are experts in this area come sit around talk about what the literature says and decide on what what they think are the core kind of diagnostic criteria or symptoms and like one if you look at who's represented at that table it's not it's not really adequate let's just say like Hmm. (laughs) thinking about like who is represented in addiction psychology or um even just that field of alcohol research really like there's there's not equity at who's being represented at those tables so it's not really shocking that like a lot of the criteria um are not applicable to a group of groups of people other groups Mm. of people beyond you know white folks for example or um middle-aged folks for example tend to kind of be like you know we think of who's normative and thinking about our samples and how we're conceptualizing these diagnoses so that's that's one issue, but also like when we're sitting around a table as experts, we're coming with our own biases, our own opinions of, you know, what our experience has told us to date. And so even though there might be consideration of the literature and, you know, um, the data, we're introducing bias into that process inherently, like it's Mm -hmm. just, it's unavoidable. So what I've also gotten really into is like, how do we make these decisions using like, statistics. And like, yeah. how do we actually take the data that we have, the information that we have, knowing that something like consumption, for example, is really informative about whether somebody is likely to have an alcohol use disorder or not, um, and use that information to kind of inform which diagnostic criteria are most relevant and for whom, right? Like like I said, not all diagnostic criteria are applicable for everyone. Um, so really trying to approach that question like empirically, <laughs> Um, and maybe try to somehow remove some of those other biases that are brought to the table as a result of the kind of current way that we approach these diagnostic systems.
0: That's so important because um, I think, I think some historical context here is, is is imperative. So if you think about, for people who don't know, the, the original 11 symptoms for alcohol use disorder that was like DSM-4 before DSM-5 changes, which was the standing diagnostic system for many, many years. Um, almost all of them are designed to be behaviorally observable by a Confederate person. And the reason that is, they'll never say this, um, is that um, it's because people believe that individuals who use drugs and alcohol are liars and cheats. And therefore they're not going to be able to accurately report to you what symptoms they're having. Um, that's why um, in the diagnostic criteria, there's nothing about frequency or quantity related to use because that's inherently considered to be not reliable data, even though that is empirically false um, as evidenced by papers uh, that we think we could just kind of give you a ton of citations. Mine alone have biochemical verification to show that self-report is valid, uh, but yet still these things remain, right? And, and individuals with lived experience are not in that room,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? I think yeah. it's, a, it's also a, a key... Uh, missing element to this. And so uh, I think it's really important. I think the work you're doing is like incredibly important to helping us to really understand just, if you look at changes from DSM four to DSM five, right? Like they got rid of the legal consequences because the sensitivity and specificity related to that item, is just like that. You're just likely to have it with a substance use disorder because it's illegal, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it doesn't actually differentiate individuals who have use disorder or don't. And I think some of the, some of the important work, um, I think Deborah Hasen or Hassan, I can't, uh, never, never remember how how to pronounce her last name uh, shows, right? Like that, like the diagnostic um, clarity between abuse and dependence is not there. And Mm I got rid of that and added craving and things like Mm -hmm. this. And so some work has really been done in this area, but there's still like uh, mountains that we don't understand. Right, and so I was wondering if you could talk us through some of the stuff that you're actually finding in your work uh, as as it relates to some of this stuff um, to help maybe individuals who are kind of early in the field as they're beginning to think about addiction and diagnosing addiction as it relates to their like clinical experiences and their training program um, or individuals in the community um, mm-hmm. think about these issues. I guess.
2: Yeah i I've really come to love like this like more hierarchical conceptualization of psychopathology. Um, A lot of work coming out of like high top, for example, that's really looking at like, what are these broad domains of dysfunction that might manifest differently, but at the core, like their mechanisms might be the same. Um, And there's a lot of benefits to that. And, you know, I'd be happy to talk about that too, but I think your question's a really good one. Like, what should we be looking for? You know, like practically as you know, clinicians and researchers, like what is the core of alcohol use disorder and how do we identify that? Um, So, you know, as I mentioned, I think the alcohol addiction research domain criteria, while still um, needing a lot of work, I think that those like three broad domains that they talk about are, are a really useful kind of framework to at least start from and just say like, a lot of my dissertation was focused on looking at those three domains and saying like, is this sufficient? If not, what are we missing? Like, what is the literature telling us about what's core? What questions still remain? Um, And what are the things that we still need to clarify? So those three domains are like cognitive control, executive function, um, reward, or they call it incentive salience. So the shifting of reward value, Um, and then like negative negative affect or negative emotionality. I've seen it called different things. and really thinking about like how a lot of the 11 symptoms can are kind of subsumed by at least one of these domains. Um, and so for me, that's been a really useful framework to work from, like thinking about at these higher levels, like where, you know, a given person presents to you in your office as a clinician and you think to yourself, like, what is going on here? That's making this person vulnerable. You know, like what, what are the, you know, I'm, I'm a very like, cognitive behaviorist. So I'm kind of thinking like, what are the antecedents of this behavior? And like what is, you know, this person's history and being able to look at, you know, what are some experiences that they might have that might make them um might make it challenging for them to have like a high level of um cognitive control on a daily basis or um what are what is their reward valuation like? Like where are they, how are they trying to find pleasure? Are they finding pleasure? Um, you know, a lot of there's a lot of great work on like reward sensitivity and response inhibition and how those two things are related. And um, it can get really blurry really quickly. But I do think that thinking about it at this higher order level above and beyond kind of, we've become so reliant on the diagnostic criteria for recruiting samples, for doing research, for characterizing people. Um, sometimes it's just really helpful to take a step back and say like, what is going on here? Like. how are are folks presenting with alcohol use disorder different or the same? Um, And one thing that I really love about the research domain criteria approach, which I know has faced a lot of criticism is, but this idea of kind of recruiting samples based on um, these more like objective markers of what we think might be core to a disorder. So like recruiting based on level of consumption rather than a skid diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, for example. Um, And I think that that, level of thinking, more that higher order level of thinking that's not so restricted by criteria that we know are quite flawed um, is really like, in the meantime, is maybe the approach that we should be taking and shifting towards in our research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do you, as you're talking through this, I'm thinking like, oh, oh, like, oh no, Um, we, (laughs) we uh, have been doing you know, we've been using these criteria for some time, some, some form of this criteria. I mean, it goes back to early iterations of the DSM really. And, um, what would it look like? I suppose, um, if you have something in mind to actually replace the, these diagnostic criteria with something else, um, do you, do you have an idea for what that would be?
2: Um, t- forthcoming. <laughs> <laughs> No, so I mentioned that my, so my dissertation, which came out of my F31 work, um, it was, well, this is, anybody who knows Ken Sher is going to laugh at this, because this is totally a Kenny thing. I had two dissertations. <laughs> one was, <laughs> yeah, just have a good laugh, everybody. What? Um, yeah, I know, because one is not enough,
1: um, but Obviously.
2: it really, it really makes sense though, right? Like, so what I did was I did this systematic review of reviews that looked at like, what are the core mechanisms identified in the literature for alcohol use disorder? And how do we, how do we take us like a systematic approach to looking at the literature and saying like, where is the evidence most robust for different mechanisms of AUD? Um, and then taking that kind of framework that was developed from that. And we kind of developed, um, this hierarchical framework that organizes the mechanisms by different domains and subdomains. And then coming up with self-report items, you know, which we know is not maybe not like the ideal approach, but as a first step, coming up with self-report items, testing those items to see if they actually get out the constructs we're interested in um, through approaches like cognitive interviewing, which I would love to talk more about that if anyone's curious, um, but using approaches like that and then mapping the items onto the mechanisms and saying, okay, are these items kind of maintaining the structure that we hypothesize in terms of these domains, do they aggregate that way? Um, and then can we start developing some, you know, evidence based assessments um, kind of under this framework. Um, so really taking a more like evidence based um, you know, construct validity heavy approach to um, coming up with a diagnostic instrument or even just an assessment instrument that really kind of tries to get more at these core mechanisms rather than like consequences or as Noah was saying like behaviors.
0: And I think that's super crucial because most measures that we have out there in the universe don't come from a bottom up approach, which is starting off talking to the individual's about how do you read that item? What do you think it's like? What is the internal monologue that you're having that's giving you answer to the answer is, oh, I'm a four out of a five point scale on that thing, right? Or yes or no, that's true for me which Mm -hmm. is what this cognitive interviewing process is and I think um, is not commonly done. It takes a lot of time and care. And so I'd love to hear about you if you could step us through the process that you took and then maybe give us like, what, what was the output of that? Like what were the domains specifically the general and specific that kind of came about from that, I think would be so important.
2: Yeah. So I've kind of interviewing is something that's relatively new to me within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of originates more in, um, like health sciences. So, um, like beyond psychology. So it was really developed. I've seen it used a lot. Gordon Willis is the, the, uh, the cognitive interviewing dude. Um, and he really has done a ton of work in this area, mostly for, um, like, I think he was working for like the national institute on like cancer research or something. I'm blanking on what it's officially Mm -hmm. called, Um, but doing a lot of work to really help them um, improve their questionnaires, like just their like outcome monitoring questionnaires, for example, um, for patients. And so I attended one of his workshops and started to realize that a little bit of this had been actually been done in the alcohol field or area, um, mostly by Tammy Chung. Um, and Chris Martin, here, well, Tammy used to be at Pitt, um, but Chris Martin's still at Pitt, uh, looking at like the skid specifically and the, um, the, that's a structured diagnostic interview, looking at the items among adolescents and how they understand those items and really realizing that like adolescents don't understand these items, they're not applicable to them when they're saying yes to something like tolerance, they're not talking about like, um, actual like tolerance that we would expect when like these changes occur in the body as a result of neuro adaptations right. they're talking about like normative increases in consumption so that really got me thinking like how many other instruments that we use in alcohol research or substance use research or psychology in general are suffering from these same problems yeah. and you know just knowing that a lot of the work that I had done early on in grad school was with college students, and just knowing, like, the limitations of diagnostic criteria, like, um, that present among college students, it really, it really just seemed like this is a problem that we, like, are not thinking about. Like, we are throwing our items into a factor analysis and saying, like, look, it's unidimensional, great, like, um, without actually thinking about, like, what do these items mean? Um, And one, like, really, I think fantastic example of this and how this kind of comes up um, in our work is comes back to the study that I had mentioned earlier where I looked at the way that we operationalize um, or kind of define these different symptoms and aggregating these operationalizations across all these instruments that we use um, to kind of assess alcohol use, alcohol use disorder, risky use um, and saying like, are these items, even though they're, you know, for example, intended to measure craving, are they all capturing that construct? Are they capturing that construct to different degrees, to different severities? And one of the, you know, cravings are really great one. And I talk, I've been talking about this a lot uh, with Sarah Peterson here is like, you know, you ask somebody like, did you have a strong like urge or desire to drink? But then you ask them like, could you, did you have difficulties not thinking about alcohol, which are two ways that we sometimes assess craving. And those are very different. Like yeah. not being able to stop thinking about alcohol versus like, I had, I had a craving like I, I once or drink twice. a
1: twice. Yeah.
2: Right. Like those are totally different.
1: Yeah.
2: Like constructs for me, at least. Or degree are well, happening to two
0: different systems, right? When right. you're talking about cognition, which mm-hmm. is thoughts. The exactly. other one you're talking about craving is more emotional. It's like more. Visceral um, visceral in this way, right? Yeah. So it's kind of coming from your body versus your head, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have a craving for chocolate, but I can stop thinking about chocolate, mm-hmm. right? And the same phenomenon. And I think that's that's I think that's a, like an important issue you bring up across measures mm-hmm. of alcohol use disorder, right? Like sometimes they say, like, Oh, did you have trouble not thinking about alcohol? Right. right. Which is, you know, is that phenomenologically mm-hmm. um what a person's experiencing?
2: Right. So potentially, you know, across the 11 criteria, we have heterogeneity, but within a cri- like a given criterion, how we're assessing that criterion yeah. potentially has all this heterogeneity as well. So that's when like cognitive interviewing really became clear to me in terms of like, okay, we get the sense <laughs> that these are not the same, yeah. but when participants read these items, are they distinguishing these con like these differences are they able to report on the difference between like one versus the other, even though they're both getting at craving, um, so to speak. So, you know, I, what I did was I came up with all these like hundreds of items basically that we use to assess alcohol use disorder and like related, related constructs. Um, And Gordon Willis just like designed this really fantastic checklist called the QAS 99 it's called the question appraisal system. And it's really, it's a really fantastic alternative if you don't, because cognitive interviewing is, it takes a lot of time. It's time consuming. A lot of folks don't feel equipped maybe to be doing qualitative research to that extent. So the checklist is fantastic because it walks you through, I think it's like eight or 10 um, common problems with self report items so that you can go through each item individually and rate them um, for each of those potential issues. So, Myself and um, a trained RA went through and went through each of these hundreds of items and said, like, do these problems exist? And the ones that had the most problems or potential problems, those were the ones that we like subjected to more um, in-depth, like cognitive interviews with participants. Mm. Um, And I mean, the findings were not (laughs) unsurprising. Like some of the language that we use to assess craving, for example, um, you know, do you sometimes do you recurrently like mm. there's all these kind of vague quantifiers of like, what does it mean to recur- recurrently have thoughts about alcohol? Like, is yeah. that like five times in a single day? Is that five times in an hour? <laughs> like,
1: right. what are
2: we actually trying to assess here?
1: Right. And there's just so much variability in, in the way that in, in, an individual can mm. sort of fill that in. Like, what, what is recurrently? Um, five times in an hour like you Mm -hmm. like you already mentioned yeah absolutely that that uh that makes a ton of sense and so you found that a few of these in particular seemed especially problematic (sighs) or all of them
2: (laughs) (laughs) there are better operationalizations and worse operationalizations um I think all the criteria, to some extent, like really suffer from shortcomings in how we define them. Either because of are unclear items, because the items aren't actually getting at the construct we're interested in, um, because the items are double-barreled, which means they're asking two questions in one item.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, and you know, we just don't spend a lot of time thinking about these things um, when we're including items in our analyses. Like we just we kind of accept, you know, that the items are assessing what they should be assessing without actually. Verifying that, um, and it's you know, I was thinking a little bit about um, what we were saying earlier in terms of uh, like the some criteria being applicable for some folks and not others. And the one example that I really think is useful is like when we used to have legal problems in DSM four hmm. when we would ask college students like do you have any legal problems? Or like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't even I don't even own a car. And one of the <laughs> items was like a DUI, right? They're like, I don't even have a car. I don't drive. Right. Um, so just, you know, like really thinking about the questions, who we're asking what questions and what that means to them,
1: right? And if there's and a, s- a symptom, so- sorry for interrupting, oh, Cassie, but if there's a symptom that it is that a whole swath of the population cannot even endorse, then that already systematically creates measurement invariance based on mm-hmm. some other outside thing that's not related to alcohol use disorder at all. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I love um, Kenny. Really, like loves to talk about hazardous use and how terrible it is, <laughs> and he talks about how him and Chris Martin talk a lot about how it's like, it's double dipping. So what that means is it potentially is counting towards like multiple types of um, dysfunction that we would think of in alcohol use disorder. So do some of these criteria like double dip in a sense where like they, um, there may be indicating something like reward dysfunction, but also some, some other aspect of like loss of control. So absolutely are these, you know, like, are we, have we even fully clarified what these items are intended to assess, which I don't think we have. Um, These are kind of like theoretical domains that these experts think these criteria should kind of fall under, but do they actually?
0: Like a lot of these things are like, this is a safe place, right? Like a lot of these things that we've been thinking about as like the truth Mm -hmm. for decades, right? Like when you zoom, in and really get back to like maybe some of the like original works on some of this stuff, it doesn't play as nice as you think. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's even anything to look at back there, right? Like um, a, a classic example of this that I like to use when I talk about this is like uh, anybody who's ever used the Beck Depression Inventory. Shout out Beck, famous for so many things, changed my life. I do CBT every day, and his item is uh, the items on the BDI load terribly they're terrible loading items. When you look at the, the, when you get the owner's manual on the BDI and it's like the, the factor loads, they're like 0.5, which is 0.7. 0.8 is what you're looking for. Right. 0.5 is just not going to cut it. If I try to publish a paper today with a with items that load at 0.5, they're going to say like, get out of here. Rejected. Reject. Right. (laughs) Desk reject. Right. (laughs) Um, And so like, as science has become more rigorous, especially psychological science has become more rigorous, the types of work that you're doing here, I think is not gonna be optional anymore. I think this is the foundational, right? Mm -hmm. That we have to walk through and step through all of these individual elements here, make sure that individuals understand our items through cognitive interviewing, right? And then make sure that we produce a scale or a measurement approach that allows us to tap into um, these specific diagnostic domains, um, and if that means that we reduce it to three items, like that's mm-hmm. what we got to do, yeah. right? Or maybe there are three domains that have individual items, like like the remain uh, the research domain criteria would be uh, suggesting for for alcohol use disorder, for instance.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's interesting. Like when I've tried to publish my work in this area, especially um, one of the optimization more like statistically focused uh, papers that I have looks at like whether or not this one size fits all diagnosis, this two out of 11 fits for everybody or whether we need to have these more like subgroup specific based on, you know, individual characteristics um, or features of like a human's experience, um, whether we need to actually like take that into consideration when thinking about like for whom is this diagnosis appropriate? Um, and does, does this diagnostic framework of two out of 11 criteria work for everybody equally? And it doesn't, the answer is no, it does not. Um, which is what we've been talking about. Like some criteria are less applicable for some people. Hmm. And a lot of the pushback that we got on that was like, you know, clinically people aren't going to do that. Like clinicians aren't going to like have one diagnosis for each different kind of person. And then of course it gets complex when you think about like intersectionality, like we're not just like a man or a woman, like, or non-binary or queer. We're also have racial ethnic backgrounds and cultural factors and age. Like there's so much to consider. So when customizing a diagnosis, there's just like all these possible combinations of a person that like really can complicate that. But at the like the pushback at the core of that was kind of concerning to me of like, well, this would just be too much to ask of a clinician. But the point of like, being a clinician is to like find the best treatment for the client. So if you're not Mm -hmm. considering these individual factors that led this person to show up in your office and are continuing to kind of maintain their alcohol use disorder, like, what are we doing? Like, what is the point of our work? Um, And so that was an interesting experience for me um, to realize like, you know, of course we think about clinical utility and efficiency and incremental validity and all of those questions, but you know, like, can we really adequately address these issues in terms of like equity and treatment and treatment gaps? Like, can we really look at those things and address them if we're not actually willing to say like, does this person have an alcohol use disorder based on like what they're experiencing and what, you know, who they are as a person and what their culture is. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it's really, it's complicated. Um, and I, I hope I like to think that we are moving away from that kind of narrow way of thinking in terms of like efficiency, but there are reasons why clinicians have reactions to that. They have to get paid. They have to have a diagnosis. Like they, you know, they're trying to do what's right also. And so it's really kind of, we're clashing again, which is part of the big problem here. Um,
1: right. Well, well, it's like ignoring the overall problem to solve this yes. problem of efficiency, right? Of like, this is bad diagnostic criteria. So, so yes, it would be a, a real problem pain in the ass for a clinician to have to, to do this in this sort of monumental way. But like, if there was a different set of diagnostic criteria that better fit the actual mm-hmm. phenomena, then, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you maybe wouldn't need that, <laughs> that much problems. And, and yes. I think that's why your work's really important is because you're building something, uh, you know, out of sort of the, 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 the flames of something that you've burnt down in a lot of ways, Cassie,
0: Sorry.
1: no, no, it's, it's good. I mean, it's, 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 it's the, the status quo is, you know, in, in, exactly. this, in decision-making science, we know that the status quo is hard to beat.
0: Yeah. Status um, quo bias is really what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Status quo bias bias. And I think also it, right. Like think about it to take, um, Sam's kind of uh, thought here and run with it a little bit is to think about, Um, how like it's already really hard for us to kind of like pinpoint specific diagnostic criteria and, and give an individual a diagnosis and then effectively chart a course for treatment for them in addiction, right? Relapse is the most common outcome of treatment for substance use disorder, right? So perhaps, I'm just gonna go out on a limb, perhaps it's because our diagnostic criteria is so booty that we then we all of our treatments are based on that and then therefore the treatments are not effectively delivering for a person's lived experience Mm. and so perhaps it would actually be more efficient if we did it right on the beginning Mm -hmm. uh versus (laughs) just saying like well changing that would cause a lot of disruption to the field so to getting rid of abuse and dependence and we figured it out yeah right like the status quo bias is is not a reason not to change something
1: absolutely right the
0: literature should drive this the research should drive this not how convenient mm-hmm. it is for me on a on a wednesday um for billing right right uh and i think um i think there's a lot of work to be done here and i think really pushing forward with some of these issues that you're discussing here is is like just so imperative for our field um like they're trying changing like we had katie wickowitz on um Uh, a few weeks ago and you know she talked about changing the definition of recovery or even creating a definition of recovery that included drinking right and like that's not like all cool in the gang for everybody in the field but we we appreciate that individual there are the research continuously shows us that there are these individuals who continue to drink and have good outcomes right and so i think it's really going to be about um consistency in our messaging approach and delivering i think um some of these empirical findings in ways that people can really relate to and understand Mm -hmm. why it's important that we change some of this stuff. And I think that's really where at the center of your work and why I think it's so important.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I would love to see in the future, like folks, researchers, clinicians approaching substance use disorder and alcohol use disorder more at this like holistic level, like, what are the main domains of dysfunction here? Can we develop treatments based on that? Um, you know, can we can we utilize some of what we know about transdiagnostic treatments and comorbidity and alcohol and substance mm-hmm. use disorders and really like maximize that and what we already know? And, you know, even if we're not gonna go create unique diagnostic criteria for different like groups of people, can we utilize some of the, you know? computerized adaptive testing that we have to create computerized diagnostic modules where people can answer questions of those larger domains of dysfunction. Then we can really get down into the weeds to Mm. say like, where is the heterogeneity within this specific person? And what are the factors that are maintaining, you know, substance use in their life or that have made, put them at risk for a substance use disorder. And that might impact the course of their recovery. Um, Yeah, I love a lot of what Katie's doing is really fantastic work. it kind of connects really nicely with kind of the foundation I'm trying to like lay and then how that translates into to treatment. Like how do we start creating treatments based on these higher order domains of dysfunction and how do we start thinking about mechanisms and um, what does that mean for recovery and um, prevention and treatment? And yeah, there's a lot of work to be done here, but I'm, I'm hopeful that like, as you can see, folks are moving in this direction.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it feels... I've not been around for too long, so I'll start there. But it feels like there's sort of been a shift—a shift in the wind—in in the last decade or so. And um, if I had to take a guess, Cassie, it seems like some of your work's going to be going to be foundational in in the future. I'm excited to see your career advance and, and to see how uh, you continue to make an impact. Um, and, uh, maybe you'll be on the next DSM committee, who knows, but if there is another DSM, I mean, which we could, no, we're not going to get into that. So, uh... Yeah. (laughs) so, um, Uh... towards the end of our episodes, we, we like to get some sort of bite-sized, um, summarizations that, that could be relevant for different stakeholders, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering, uh, if you could, you know, if, if you could summarize in in a handful of sentences, what your work, uh, what, what kind of implications your work have for people in recovery?
2: Yeah, I think it comes back to this idea of like heterogeneity, right? Like, because every person's so different and because their experience of an alcohol use disorder is likely to be so different in terms of what initiated it, what's maintaining it and what will help in their recovery and what recovery means for them. Even, um, I think it like, it's important to have this expectation that like the same treatment won't work for everyone. If a treatment worked for someone that, you know, in similar shoes who's using alcohol, um, or who was trying to like, you know, um, pursue recovery, it worked for them. It might not work for you. And I think that that, like, The way that our society thinks about addiction, especially is like, well, just recover, like just go to AA, like, you know, and there's kind of, we think about things so, um, narrowly, you know, and, um, we take in that information about what recovery looks like, what it harm reduction looks like. And so I think just as we want to keep in mind that like alcohol use disorder is so heterogeneous, heterogeneous, so is recovery recovery is personal and there's not one right way to do it. Um, that's why I really love like some of the work being done, like by Katie, for example, um, and Brandon, who you've had on the podcast previously, Mm -hmm. like, it's just really, we just really kind of have to start shifting. It's like for folks in recovery, it's not like their problem to tackle. In my opinion, it's the field's issue to tackle. It's society's issue to tackle in terms of how we conceptualize recovery.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really important message that, and I think it's important also just to kind of like put a pin in this thing specifically is that um if people are telling you individuals in recovery if you're listening if somebody's telling you that like your experience doesn't map onto their experience and therefore is incorrect mm-hmm. right like this work says they're wrong mm-hmm. right <laughs> this work says they're wrong yeah right? right and so find chart a course of recovery for you that fits with what's going on for you Mm-hmm. Right. And I, th- I really think we're, like, like we've had a couple of people on the show in, in, a, in different capacities that have talked about this from different angles, right. You know, uh, Brandon Bergman, for instance, is doing some work as you talked about Katie Wickowitz, right. You know, talking about the recovery end. you're kind of coming in the other end too. And I think that this stuff's going to meet in the middle, hopefully, and really kind of show up for people in recovery in ways that are going to allow them access to treatments that are going to connect with them in a, in a more um, efficient and effective way. If we create the kind of palette of treatment options that um, connect with all the individual constituent parts of the experience of alcohol use disorder, for instance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: So what would you say then um, to practitioners who are listening?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the message would be really similar. Like not all clients who show up in your office with a substance use disorder and share a diagnosis potentially, like all got there the same way. Like they're likely to have varying factors that led to like I've mentioned before, initiation, maintenance, escalation, course—like this is not a one-size-fits-all approach, and we have to kind of shift our thinking about that. Um, it's unlikely to be sufficient, right? Based on kind of what we've been talking about today. Um, so I think I love the idea of, as I mentioned, like focusing more holistically. So looking at the varied needs of individuals, like um, Dr. Ayana Jordan, who you just had on, who was—I'm so excited to share a month with her. Like some of her work on you know, thinking about the needs of individuals, like housing and discrimination, like other social determinants of health that might be factoring into why this, you know, this treatment that we have that's been shown to be so effective for white people is not working for everybody. Um, And so I think, you know, thinking about equity and treatment and how we really start moving towards that, it's going to require us to move beyond this one size fits all conceptualization.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, what would you say to policymakers?
2: Yeah, um, I feel like I've been really heavily influenced by Katie Wickowitz here as well. Um, just thinking <laughs> we about, <all> have. <laughs> yeah, I know. How can you not be right? <laughs> right. <laughs> She's fantastic.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but like, our goal here should be not to like force people into one path. Our goal should be to reduce harm and reduce suffering. Um, especially of folks who are using substances. So moving away from the stigmatization, <laughs> criminalization, um, we know that has like really dire effects, for, especially for black and Latinx folks, like it's not working. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that we're starting to maybe realize that with some of the changes that we're seeing happen. Absolutely. With policy, um, which are is really exciting, <laughs> it was a really exciting outcome of the last week or so. Um, but yeah, just really thinking about like, what are we really concerned about here? Like, Are we really concerned about reducing pe- people's harm and suffering? Because if we are, we need to start listening to some of these um, experts out there who know far more than I do about these topics and kind of what needs to be happening in terms of policy.
0: Oh, that's such a good point. That's such a good point, right? If the war on drugs was about reducing suffering, mm. it wouldn't focus on the drugs. Right. It would focus on the people.
2: Yeah. I right? mean, just, just even we could all learn so much from just being more flexible in our conceptualizations and our approaches, and that right. reaches all the way up to policy as well.
1: Right, and as Great. you said, you know, we're about to have a, f- a few natural experiments of some of these tests in Oregon. I think DC passed a few laws as well uh, in a few places around the country, so I'm, I'm really excited about that, and I, I, uh, I, I think it was a huge win against the war
0: on drugs. Agreed, agreed. What would you say um, to individuals who, uh, from underserved populations?
2: Yeah. Um, I think largely like addiction research and treatment has failed. Um, it's been far from equitable. Um, if we can't adequately identify who's at risk, what the risk factors are, how to how to treat somebody once they have an alcohol use disorder or a substance use disorder, um, that just shows us that we have a lot more work to do. Um, so I think like, I really would, yeah, I would be hopeful and I, I hope to express like my commitment to like figuring out how we can create more culturally informed diagnostic criteria and assessment practices that again, take into account more of this holistic approach and look more at things like mechanisms rather than consequences, which we know are quite biased. Yeah. Um, you know, and so really just another thing is increasing representation among the researchers that are doing this kind of work and um, collaborating with folks that don't look like you um, people with lived experience, which know, mentioned earlier like there we have a long way to go and you know while I'm while I'm hopeful that um, there are folks that are really committed to this and that are doing a lot of great work like dr. Jordan um, you know we have a long way to go
1: yeah yeah absolutely I mean and I think that there's going to be continuous um, push um, against the, the status quo another status quo of um, just sort of ignoring this area this very important area of research and it's going to be something that if if, if we uh, as a field or as the people the people who are pushing if if they stop, uh, I fear that that it will stop as well. So I think yeah. we all need to sort of hop on board and participate in that in that push uh, as much as possible to try and get over the hump. Um, well, thank you so much, Cassie. Um, you, you you've done a lot of really cool work. Um, you've done a lot of really cool research, and you've you've been successful um, getting into A really awesome doctoral program, and then also a a really amazing internship as well. And do you have any advice for any trainees out there?
2: (sighs) Advice. (laughs) Whenever I get asked this, I just feel so like ill-equipped to give advice to folks. You know, it's just (laughs) really like, like, does it ever get better? (laughs) Um, you know, I think like I'm really, I'm just really like so grateful to all the mentors I've had that have really like instilled these values of transparency and humility and openness in me as a researcher. Um, I think especially in this area, like it kind of is stirring the pot a little bit, like not everybody loves the work that I'm doing and not everybody has responded positively to it. Hmm. It's not always the fastest research. It's not getting the most citations, like It can be really hard to like, I think if my goals were different, like if, if my core value wasn't like advancing psychological science and, um, those that we serve through our science, I think that that would be much harder for me to sit with. I think, you know, even Mm -hmm. at times I, I catch myself in like, Oh, I'm behind my peers or I don't have as many citations or publications, you know, and it can be really easy to get caught up in that. But I think like, it's really helpful for me to come back to those core values that I've really just had reiterated to me of like, these like transparency and humility and like reducing suffering those are the foundations of our research and like as long as my work is like doing that with integrity um and I'm continuing to approach my research with like humility and like just for this greater good of the populations that I'm aiming to serve like I'm doing the work like that's what matters um and so I would encourage trainees like find what you're passionate about find what you love because like it, it can be really hard to just get sucked into this, like, academic comparison culture, and if if you're not getting value, like, out of your work that you're doing, and if it doesn't bring you personal meaning, like, maybe it's time to reassess and, like, reevaluate, mm. because, you know, like, at the core, at the end of the day, it's not about the citations or, you know, the journals. Like, it's about reducing suffering and advancing psychological science.
1: It's values-based action. I love that, Cassie. I mean, I think... <laughs> I think it's so easy to just say, like, well, you know, the, the, the more, the further you get, the more articles you publish or, mm-hmm. you know, the more talks you give, I think the easier it is, easier it is to be disappointed in yourself almost for not yeah. having gotten another article published or rejected or something. So mm-hmm. coming back to those values at all times, I think is critical in this field, just to stay grounded yes. and remind yourself that I'm doing the work I need to do to move towards the type of person I want to be. I love that Cassie. Yeah, uh, thank, thank I you think very that's much.
0: so important. I think that's so important not to. I just want to like let that sit for a second, like how important that is, mm-hmm. right? Like may, maybe it's corny or whatever, but like <laughs> not not that you say that. Like I say all the time. Like to I get I get um, asked a lot now that I'm faculty. Like what are faculty looking for, right? Like the mysterious <laughs> question of like what faculty are looking for, and I don't know what other faculty are looking for, but for me, criterion number one is like real passion Mm -hmm. about helping others right like that's like number one Mm -hmm. it's not like um you know pubs or like these types of things and like cvs show up for different people there's academic privilege depending on where you went to as you went to nau as you right there's like differences like Mm -hmm. sometimes you gotta like fight some people for a pub and other (laughs) people show up and get a ton of pubs (laughs) and there's all this different thing but like for me the, the hard work of science and of doing clinical work starts for me from this value-based action around wanting to help others and reduce human suffering right and i think that's a super important thing it's just marie kondo your research right (laughs) just hold on to it is that giving me joy negative out of here you love
1: marie kondo Noah. (laughs) i just love that analogy i don't i
0: don't know i don't the show is is good um it isn't it isn't the greatest breaking show which i'm watching all oh. the time <laughs> shout out to that show <laughs> right um but but for me it's just like that that analogy is so important right. to me because it's easy to get caught up in the rat race of like get mm-hmm. a pub pu- get a citation get all of these things um and that allows um for me to me to look at a cv of my own and think these pubs make no impact Mm-hmm. right? Like these like real small yeah. incremental things. And like, those are important, right? Like measurement and variance and things like this are like pretty in the weeds, but mm-hmm. they're important. And it's about structuring, right? All that stuff together to be able to make real meaningful difference for real people, um, as they live their lives. Right. And I'm glad to hear that that's part of the advice that you, that you give, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's a super important and often overlooked aspect about, um, doing graduate work. Cause it is hard, Mm-hmm. right? Like it is hard. There's the sleep and the, all these different things, um, mm-hmm. are, are really tough. And so I think it's important that it like, it's anchored in something meaningful in this way. And so I'm yeah. really, really <laughs> glad that you said that. And I'm yeah. really glad that we had you on the show today. Thank yeah. you so much for giving us some of your time. Yeah. It's been yeah, awesome. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Next month on the Addiction Psychologist podcast, we're going to be talking with Victoria Votaw. Tori is a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of New Mexico, and we're going to be talking to her about prescription drug misuse and some of her work on validating substance use disorder phenotypes um, from the perspective of the uh, recent addictions neuroclinical assessment domains. Tune in.